Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I have a confession to make to you as I begin this sermon. Over the last week or so, as I've been thinking about this text and thinking about this sermon, I had misremembered a crucial line. Here's what I was planning on preaching about. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. Could not. Then, as I sat down with my notes and reread the text, preparing to put the sermon down, I saw the crucial difference. Did. The darkness did not overcome the light. Well, that's a different sermon, I thought to myself. <laughs> the darkness did not overcome the light. Often, as I was preparing to do in my earlier draft of this sermon, we like to split things into either or, darkness, light, right, wrong. We set up little contests or big fights. We live in a digital world, and sometimes I wonder if all of the on and off, this or that, has us playing a zero-sum game. We polarize easily. The Franciscan teacher Richard Rohr says that we are dualistic in our basic inherited theology. That's what he calls this either-or, us-versus-them tension we seem to constantly live with. Dualism. We set ourselves up in opposition, in tension. He argues this causes some of the basic inequities that we've constructed. When we view the world, especially the people of the world, as us versus them, we set up a dualism. Women or men, black or white, gay or straight, Republican or Democrat, we've created a lot of ors to categorize people. And our categories are failing us. Which is why this image of the light shining in the darkness caught my attention. The darkness did not overcome it. What is the light that shines? And the light is John's version of the Christmas story. Rather than shepherds and angels like in Luke, the beautiful Hallmark Disney version of Christmas, John gives us a theological hymn. Aren't hymns some of the best theology? Aren't they also sometimes the worst theology? <laughs> In this case, the Logos hymn, it's some of the best. But what does the Logos do? The Logos, the word, this Greek mysterious word, generates. You may have missed the word generates in the passage as it was printed in your bulletin because it's not there. Our New Revised Standard Bible translates the Greek word ginomai, our root for generate, as came into being. I think we're better served by the fullness of the verb generates. In the beginning, John tells us, the word was with God, and through the Logos, all things were generated. This verb generates, discloses something about the life of God. God is constantly generative. Bring to your mind another descendant word, generator. According to John, the ongoing action, the ongoing work of God in our world is generating, giving power, giving life to all life. 
all life. Note that God does not simply bring human beings into being. God, the Logos, continues to bring all things into being. Unlike our power generators, which belch out carbon and limit the life of the planet, God generates ongoing life. This verb, I posit, may be the best guiding light in determining whether a policy or a position or an action is godly, is Christian. And Pope Francis, I think, gets this intuitively. This new pope has mostly left behind the life-sapping fights that have characterized the Roman church. He's frustrated reporters who want hard-line statements on women, gay people, or non-Catholics. Instead, the pope is busy embracing the deformed men, washing Muslim girls' feet, playing with children. He's generating life. Of course, using generating life as a guide can get tricky. There are moments when no decision will generate life. But I think it's a pretty good measuring stick. If an action or a policy generates life for more people, for more creatures, for the planet, that action could be called Christian or godly because it participates in Christ's action as logos. God generates life and light. But that does not necessarily mean that God is not also in the darkness. From the 17th century poet Henry Vaughan, there is in God, some say, a deep but dazzling darkness. As men here say, it is late and dusky because they see not all clear. Oh, for that night, where I in him might live invisible and dim. There is in God, some say, a deep but dazzling darkness. We often associate darkness with loss, with sadness, with difficulty. We talk about the dark night of the soul using the words of the Spanish mystic John of the Cross. But, we don't, but do we know what that dark night means? In her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, the Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor considers John of the Cross's dark night. She says that readers of Dark Night of the Soul are bound to be disappointed if they want John to tell them how to survive hard circumstances and cling to God. One of the central functions of the dark night, he says, is to convince those who grasp after things that God cannot be grasped since God is not a thing. God cannot be held on to. God can only be encountered as that which eclipses the reality of all other things. I wonder whether this image from John's Gospel of the light shining in the darkness is less about opposition and more about contrast. A candle shining in the darkness is more poignant than that same flame on a bright sunny day. Light and darkness need one another to make meaning. Christ's light came to shine, but not to overwhelm. Last week on Christmas Eve, we lit candles during the services and sang Silent Night. And those weren't the only candles we lit at Holy Communion on December 24th. There's a not well-kept secret in Episcopal churches like Holy Communion. I'll tell you about it anyway. 
Almost every service we have is at least a little interfaith. And some of the members of our choir, some of the regular members of our choir are Jewish. And Jews come here to Holy Communion to sing hymns, especially at Christmas. The Anglican choral tradition has admirers in other faiths. They may not choose to receive the bread and wine, but they are more than happy to belt out Christmas carols and descants. Last week on Christmas Eve, as the choir and clergy gathered for dinner between the services, two of our choir members lit the first candles on a menorah and sang the blessings of Hanukkah. This year, Christmas Eve was the first night of the Jewish celebration of light. That day earlier, a rabbi friend of mine, Jack Moline, was quoted in the Washington Post. Lighting a candle in the darkness, that is something that stands on its own, he said. Another rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, once said that almost all Jewish holidays can be summarized simply. They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. Note, the goal is not conquering or eliminating the enemy. The goal is survival. A light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. I was ready, as I was preparing this sermon initially, to talk about all of the ways darkness could not overcome light, the places we could not allow darkness to overcome the light this year. Now I'm not so sure. We face the start of a year that brings certain unsteadiness. I'm less sure about saying exactly where darkness cannot overcome light. I'm concerned about setting up too many definite opposites this early in the year. In the times to come, I think we need some more room for nuance, which may mean feeling like we're stumbling around in the dark a little. We may need to let go of our assurances to move forward. I am sure that in the year to come, we will stand together. We will light candles together when we need to. Just as in 2016, some of us gathered to light candles with the moms demanding action to pray for an end to gun violence. We will light those candles. One memory from 2016 stands out very clearly for me. In my mind's eye, I can still see the crowd that came together on June 12th last year in the Grove. As the summer sun set the night after the attack on the Pulse nightclub, you could see a thousand faces lit by candles held against the dimming orange sky. I needed those faces that night. I needed those candles. I needed the assurance after an attack on the LGBT community that God's light can still shine. In the year to come, we will hold on to light in the darkness. We will pray. There are times when we live in darkness, and God can be found there in the darkness as well. Bringing the contrast, bringing light in uncertainty, that is part of our ongoing work, our ongoing celebration of this Christmas season. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Sometimes I'm still working out what the gospel means. But even in uncertain times, 
I know God's light still shines. Amen.